Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. It's Wednesday already, surely not. Hello there, Marcus Paul. Nice to have your company on this 11th day of May. That means we're only 10 days away from the federal election and even less away from when you'll stop hearing about it with the blackout, the media blackout. Anyway, much to talk about this morning. Thank you for tuning in here on starterfm.com.au, the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in and later, of course, if you listen back to the podcast, to the Prawncast, and if you do, please do us a favour and share it on your socials. One of the worst-kept secrets in Australian politics has been unveiled with Clive Palmer reneging on... How much money do you reckon this bloke has spent? Didn't I outline it the other day? Tens of millions, if not more, of dollars, you know, bagging out the two major parties. Well, as I've always argued, and I spoke to Jordan Shanks about it the other day, a vote for Clive is a vote for Scott. And wouldn't you know it, the United Australia Party will preference Liberals and Nationals in marginal seats. Surprise, surprise. Anyway, I've got that story coming up for you soon. A really important story on uh, coercive control and changes to domestic violence laws in Queensland. Congratulations to the uh, Queensland government on spending up big on protecting women. It comes, of course, in light of some horrific stories in the last number of years, including the murders of Alison Baden, Clay and others. Um, it's just horrific stories. And Hannah Clark, of course, the other one, her parents in particular are behind the push for coercive control laws. And it would appear the government has listened and there are recommendations that will now be followed. And fortunately for women, it should protect them a little further. What is coercive control and what will these new laws mean? I'll go through that story for you soon. Speaking of governments, uh, right at this point in time, there's an acting uh, leader in the Northern Territory with Michael Gunner, the Northern Territory's Chief Minister, resigning suddenly overnight. Uh, Mr Gunner, who's had some recent health problems, including a heart attack, um, said he held his newborn son for the first time a little while ago and said, that's it. I can no longer give 100% to the job. I'll get to that story for you as well this morning. Craig McLaughlin may well wish that he didn't go back to court to fight defamation charges because he's reliving all of these allegations again. Now, McLaughlin is fighting a number of media organisations who he claimed defamed him, um, running stories on how he allegedly sexually abused a number of women during his career in the last decade, notably on the Rocky Horror Show, that he, uh, the stage show that he performed in. Yesterday, the defence said that they'd be calling 11 women to give testimony to the fact that they were also abused, sexually or otherwise, by Mr McLaughlin. It's getting very nasty. And this would appear to be something out of a, a movie. Uh, 50, was it 50 million? I'll have to double-check my notes. Anyway, millions of dollars worth of cocaine apparently stuffed in the uh, underbelly of a ship that sailed to Australia, a cargo ship from Argentina that docked into the port of Newcastle over the weekend. Now, allegedly, uh, the story is that a mule who was diving underneath to retrieve the bricks of cocaine drowned. Anyway, police are trying to put the puzzle together. I'll bring you that story as well. Like I say, it's something akin to what you'd see on Netflix or in Hollywood. All that coming up and much, much more. Give us a call anytime, 0406-521-250. Please keep commenting on the Facebook page as you do. Uh, we'll have all the latest news as we as we always do each and every morning between 7 and 9 here on Starter FM. That's coming up throughout the course of the morning as well. Thanks to Air News 
And some great tunes to keep us in the mood on this Wednesday. It's the 11th day of May. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. If you like, you can give me a call. What's the number, Marcus? 0406521250. Anytime, 24-7. Call me on, have your say on the Marcus Paul in the morning show. On Starter FM. Okay, Wednesday morning, it's the 11th of May. That means there's just 10 days to go until the federal election, although tens of thousands of Australians are already pre-polling around the country. Now, yesterday, Labor leader Anthony Albanese took the unusual step of endorsing an increase to the minimum wage of at least 5.1% to keep up with the rate of inflation. Albo said if Labor wins the federal election, it will make a submission to the Fair Work Commission urging the independent umpire to ensure wages at least keep up with the cost of living. He said we think no one should go backwards. With inflation, the key cost of living measure running at 5.1%, Mr Albanese was asked if he would back an equal increase in wages. Absolutely, he said. The Australian Council of Trade Unions, that's the ACTU of course, they are pushing for a 5.5% increase which would see the minimum wage rise from $772.60 to $815.09 a week or equivalent to $42,384.84 a year. Earlier, Mr Albanese would not endorse the ACTU's wage claim, but when pressed on his position at a later press conference, he backed an increase in line with inflation. Wages and cost of living pressures, of course, have emerged as the dominant themes during this election campaign, with skyrocketing inflation forcing the Reserve Bank of Australia to increase interest rates for the first time in 11 years. And there will be more rate rises as the months continue in 2022. Now, while wages have remained stagnant under the coalition, Finance Minister Simon Birmingham said it was almost unprecedented for a political leader to call for a specific wage increase. No Australian government or opposition has ever put a figure on the rate of the annual wage increase, and yet Mr Albanese has done just that. That was Simon Birmingham. He's put a figure out there without a shred of analysis or information to back up his position. Now, Senator Birmingham labelled the move a thought bubble and used Mr Albanese's intervention to again question his economic credentials. Now, the Reserve Bank of Australia expects inflation to peak at 6% this year. That's twice the forecast wages growth of 3%. All right, so of course the key points there. Labor leader Anthony Albanese said he would absolutely back a 5.1% increase in the minimum wage while unions are pushing for 5.5%. Albo said Labor would make a submission to the Fair Work Commission's annual wage review if it wins the election. However, he was rebuked by Coalition Finance Minister Simon Birmingham who said no political leader has ever put a figure on the size of any minimum wage rise. If you want to have your say, there's a post on the Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the morning, or you can give us a call anytime, 24-7 on the hotline. It's open for you now, 0406 521 Favourite, apparently, there's uh, the incumbents, the underdog, I hear. Well, what nonsense. Uh, the Prime Minister has the advantage of incumbency. Uh, he certainly doesn't deserve another term in office. They're shooting for their second decade in government and without a plan. They just have rhetoric. Uh, We have here in Australia an opportunity for a great future, but it should be a future made in Australia. I tell you what, they've got nearly $60 million for major government advertising campaigns of hot air in the run-up to the 2022 election. I mean, that must concern you. There's a big kitty there for the marketing man. Well, it's just a disgrace that they're spending taxpayers' money uh, to promote themselves. Uh, But that's the problem with this government. They see taxpayers' money as being the same as Liberal Party money.
Well, former Australian of the Year Grace Tame can't seem to stay out of the news. She made headlines yesterday with uh, criticism about Anthony Albanese appearing on the Alan Jones program. Yeah, Grace Tame voiced her anger over Albo's interview with Alan Jones. Yeah, nah, this is where you could have just frowned and walked off, said Grace. She's lashed out at Albo after he posed for a photograph with broadcaster Alan Jones. Now, the Labor leader earlier this week shared a photo on his Twitter account shaking hands with the former radio and television host who is relaunching his digital show... Good chat with Alan Jones today in his new Sydney studios. Albo captioned the post. Jones, of course, has a history of disparaging comments towards women, including New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. We remember all of that. He once said that she should have a sock shoved down her throat and also suggested that Scott Morrison gets tough here with a few backhanders. And I was fired. Anyway, among his critics is Tame, the former Australian of the Year, who voiced her displeasure that Albo had appeared on his show. Yeah, nah, this is where you could have just frowned and walked off, uh, she replied to his tweet, or better yet, not done it. There are plenty of other ways, says Grace, to broaden your messaging without enabling known agents of sexism and abuse. None of us is obliged to speak to bigots. The optics of this aren't good. Now, she also offered a nod to her infamous cold shoulder with Morrison, replying to another tweet, a wasted side-eye moment. Albo spent Monday promising funding for the education sector as well as a hospital in South Australia, riding high on new opinion polls indicating Labor has extended its lead two weeks out from the election. As we know, the latest news poll shows Labor ahead 54 to 46 on two-party preferred, up one point from the previous week, while an Ipsos poll is even better It has Labor on a 35% primary vote, while the coalition has dropped to 29%. At his former high school, Albo was greeted by a mob of cheering students who called him over for selfies and high fives, while, of course, Scott Morrison spent Monday in Gilmore, which is currently held by Labor, on a slim margin of 2.6%. All right, so that's a little of the politics that's gone on in the last 24 hours. Now, just on to something a little different. Craig McLaughlin, uh, the actor who is currently embroiled in defamation action, well, his trial has heard that he allegedly indecently assaulted 11 women that he worked with in Australian theatre and television productions. Now, McLaughlin is suing the ABC and Fairfax Media for defamation over stories from 2018 containing allegations he indecently assaulted, harassed, bullied and exposed himself to female cast members during the 2014 tour of The Rocky Horror Show. He's also suing actress Christy Whelan Brown, who made the allegations to the ABC 730 program and the Sydney Morning Herald. Fairfax Media has since been bought by Nine Entertainment. Michael Hodge QC, the lawyer representing Whelan Brown and the media, told the jury yesterday that 11 women would give evidence during the trial about inappropriate encounters they'd had with McLaughlin during performances, filming and behind the scenes. Six of the women worked on the 2014 Rocky Horror Picture Show production, one worked on the 2018 Rocky Horror Show production, another worked with McLaughlin on the soap opera Neighbours, one was a showrunner on Channel 7's City Homicide series, and two were actors in the Dr Blake Mysteries. Now, Mr Hodge told the court yesterday three of the actors from the Rocky Horror Show who played the role of Janet would give evidence about alleged indecent touching during a bedroom scene. The court heard these women would allege McLaughlin, who played the character Dr Frankenfurter, would kiss and touch their breasts and other body parts under the bed covers and out of view of the audience. Mr Hodge said this was not something McLaughlin had been directed to do and that it had not been agreed to with the other actors. The court heard Whelan Brown would give evidence that during a show in Perth, McLaughlin pulled her underpants to the side while under the covers and kissed her buttocks and that she was also touched inappropriately during a Melbourne performance.
However, McLaughlin later gave evidence that he only kissed the actors who played Janet on the shoulder or arm during the bedroom scene. During the trial, Will and Brown will also detail another night on stage where McLaughlin grabbed her by the jaw and aggressively threw her face to one side. This wasn't something in the script, according to the lawyers. Now, Mr Hodge told the jury that while McLaughlin and Will and Brown didn't have the same sense of humour, there is a point of overlap that is pretty filthy, quote-unquote. You will likely conclude Will and Brown finds things funny that others might find highly offensive. Anyway, McLaughlin then took the stand and told the jury that physical displays of affection and practical jokes between Rocky Horror cast members were very common backstage and during rehearsals. He narrowed in on Will and Brown being the goosing queen of the cast, explaining that a goose is when someone uses a couple of fingers to poke someone else between the buttocks. It's charming stuff, isn't it? It was one of Will and Brown's regular gags throughout the entire tour. Wedgies were also a popular one. Now, McLaughlin said Will and Brown would often try and dack some of the male cast members, meaning to pull their pants down. And during a preview season in Brisbane, came into McLaughlin's dressing room and asked if he could see her vagina through her stage underwear. What? He recounted how the pair were good friends during the Rocky Horror production and met for the first time while working on a 2005 arena production of the musical Grease. He said that our relationship at that time was terrific, lots of laughs. McLaughlin was shown a photo of the pair posing backstage and explained Will and Brown had asked him if they could do some quasi-porno shots in their costumes. She said, I can lean against the wall and pull her hair. I said, I will do the poses, but I won't pull your hair. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Yesterday, the actor's lawyer accused the ABC in Fairfax of launching a double-pronged attack which damaged McLaughlin's reputation. Now, this entire hearing is expected to run for around five weeks. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, welcome back. Wednesday morning, Marcus Paul in the morning, 0406 521 That's the hotline if you would like to send us your thoughts. You can even send us a text if you like. Or if you prefer, as a lot of you tend to do, you can comment on the Facebook page. Now, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, yesterday doubled down on his thoughts on a New South Wales-style independent commission against corruption at a federal level. He was speaking in Sydney with uh, New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet. And again, ScoMo criticised the New South Wales ICAC after being asked whether he is a, quote, buffoon for calling it a kangaroo court, putting him at odds with New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet. One of the commissioners of the New South Wales ICAC has said that those who describe the New South Wales ICAC as a kangaroo court are buffoons. You've described it as a kangaroo court. Are you a buffoon, given his comment? Um, well, I, I stand by everything I've said on this matter. I don't believe the New South Wales ICAC is the model that we should be following at a federal level. I've seen it uh, come to and, and destroy people's uh, reputations and careers before it's even made a finding, and I don't think that's good process. And uh, I'm not alone in that. Speaking after the PM, Mr Perrottet said it's played an important role in New South Wales politics. Many of you having your say, including Mark, who writes, To be more accurate, the PM doubles down on his thoughts on an effective style ICAC at a federal level. It's got nothing to do with any contrived difference, by the way. State and federal systems of government, it's got everything to do with the difference an effective or ineffective ICAC would have. Guess which one Scotty wants, Marcus? Um, Magnus writes, he's terrified of a federal ICAC. Vote Labor so we can see why. Um, Anthony reminds us it was set up by the LNP in New South Wales, while many of you, many others of you uh, included memes in your replies. Uh, Trevor goes a step further. What a tool Morrison is, the man that common sense forgot. It is fun, though, watching him live out his political death. (laughs) Really? And Deb, well, 
she sums it up with three words, bye-bye, Scotty. Here is the audio of what went down yesterday. The Prime Minister doubling down on his thoughts on a New South Wales-style independent commission against corruption at a federal level. Marcus Paul in the morning. The Marcus Paul hotline. Starter FM. 0406-521-250. Call now and have your say 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah, welcome back. Wednesday morning, 10 days out from the federal election. And I noticed yesterday that the Victorian Premier, Dan Andrews, got very personal with Scott Morrison. Uh, He attacked ScoMo in relation to funding provided during emergencies for those south of the New South Wales border. Mel writes, Marcus, when a Prime Minister cherry-picks where emergency funding will go, dependent on who is in each state, that's a disgraceful practice. I've never seen a more lower act in my life than how the LNP treated the states whilst the pandemic ran rampant throughout. If you vote anything but Labor, you've got bricks for brains. (laughs) All right. Uh, Nathan says, geez, tell us what you really think, Danny boy. Well, let's have a listen to what Dan Andrews said yesterday about the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Every federal dollar that Victorians get from the miserable Morrison government, it's we we ought to bow our head and treat it like it's foreign aid. We have been ripped off by this Liberal National Government Uh, And instead of Mr Morrison talking about these issues, he ought to have been here delivering for Victorian workers and families. You know, this is not, this is, this is, this is what, this is what desperate people who have built nothing and done nothing, got an excuse for everything and a plan for nothing. This is the sort of stuff that comes out of Prime Ministers who have just run out of time. Yeah, welcome back, Marcus. Paul in the morning. Well, it was only a matter of time, wasn't it, until the political cat was out of the bag. A vote for Clive Palmer's United Australia Party is a vote for the Liberal Nationals. A vote for Clive is a vote for Scott. Now, yesterday we learnt the United Australia Party will direct preferences to coalition in key marginal seats. So, in other words, Clive Palmer has walked back on a promise to preference incumbents last as part of a concerted campaign against the two major parties. Uh, Remember when he said, of course, that he would always put Labor and Liberal last? You know, saying he can't trust the major parties? Surely you've seen one of the million or so ads that have aired around the country in the last, I don't know, two, three months, while he's backtracked on all of this. The United Australia Party has now decided to recommend preferences to at least three Liberal incumbents uh, in key marginal seats uh, in Chisholm, Gladys Liu, in Reid, Fiona Martin and in Bass, Bridget Archer. It will also support Liberal incumbents Jason Falinski in McKellar and Dave Sharma in Wentworth. Now, both of these men are under threat from so-called teal independence, with both candidates trading the second preference position with Clive Palmer's United Australia Party. Independent candidates Sophie Scamps in McKellar and in Wentworth, Allegra Spender, have both slammed the moderate MPs for the move and demanded to know details of the, what what they call a dirty deal struck between the two parties. But Clyde Palmer has told Sky News his party have put the North Sydney moderate Liberal MP Trent Zimmerman at the bottom of the How to Vote card because he's preference the Labor Party over our own party. Palmer said other significant Liberal figures placed at the bottom of the UAP How to Vote card was Peter Dutton in the marginal Queensland seat of Dixon. Now, just on Peter Dutton. I read yesterday with interest that he's terrified. He is absolutely under threat of losing his seat up there in Dixon. Anyway, sources monitoring pre-poll voting in Queensland say the only electorates in the state where the UAP has recommended preferences to Labor above the LNP on how to vote cards are Dixon. That, of course, is, as I mentioned, Peter Dutton's seat, Griffith, 
McPherson and also the seat of Groom. Palmer will support the LNP candidate in the Queensland seat of Flynn, Colin Boyce, ahead of the Labor challenger, a high-profile former Mayor Matt Burnett. Labor had been targeting Flynn in the hope of picking up one regional Queensland seat, but Palmer preferences, assuming locals follow the how-to-vote cards, will likely make that impossible. As previously reported in The Guardian, the United Australia Party will back the LNP MP for the Queensland seat of Wide Bay, Lou O'Brien, because he had supported an effort to bring on debate about a private member's bill prohibiting a COVID-19 vaccine passport system. In the New South Wales seat of Reid, which Labor is confident of picking up from the coalition, the United Australia Party will initially direct preferences to other minor parties and independent Natalie Bainey, but has decided to preference incumbent Liberal MP Fiona Martin ahead of Labor's Sally Situ. It will also preference the coalition in the seat of Hunter, where the Nationals are hoping to win the Heartland Labor seat for the first time, and in Gilmore, where the Liberal Party is hoping to unseat Labor's Fiona Phillips. The Liberals' Andrew Constance, of course, has been placed third on the Palmer ticket. Meanwhile, in the Hunter, the United Australia Party preference other minor parties, including independent candidate Stuart Bonds and One Nation candidate Dale McNamara, before directing preferences to the Nationals' James Thompson in fifth. Labor's Dan Rapacoli has been listed eighth on the ticket ahead of the Greens. The Liberals are also set to benefit from Palmer preferences in the seat of Parramatta, where it is hoping to cause an upset with its candidate Maria Kovacic. The United Australia candidate Julian Fayed has been campaigning strongly against Labor's captain's pick candidate Andrew Charlton and has previously told The Guardian he intended to preference the Liberals. All right, well, where else? Let's have a look here. In Labor's most marginal seat of Macquarie, held by a 0.2% margin, the Liberals have been placed fourth on the ticket, while Labor has been placed seventh. In Dobell, held by Labor on a 1.5% margin, the Liberal candidate Michael Feenley is ahead of Labor MP Emma McBride. Amid simmering concern about the impact of Palmer preferences on the fringes of Melbourne, the United Australia Party has also decided to preference the Liberals in the new seat of Hawke to the city's west, placing the party in sixth position ahead of Labor's Sam Ray in ninth spot. And on it goes, I've got a headache already from all of this stuff, but look, ultimately what they're suggesting and what the facts are is that Clive Palmer has definitely walked back on his promise to preference incumbents last as part of his concerted campaign against the two major parties. I've been saying for a while, in the most a vote for Clive Palmer's United Australia Party is a vote for the Liberal Nationals. Marcus Paul in the morning. Some big news out of Queensland yesterday. The government, the Palaszczuk government, announced legislation alongside historic and wide-reaching reforms designed to better protect victims from domestic and family violence. It's all about coercive control. Now, advocates for victims of DV have welcomed plans to introduce this new legislation to criminalise coercive control in Queensland by the end of next year, describing the new laws as a major step forward. Now, the legislation comes as part of an overhaul of laws and practices designed to better protect victims from domestic and family violence and hold perpetrators to account. Criminalising coercive control has been under discussion in Queensland since 2020, since that horrific story 
surrounding Hannah Clark and her three children who were killed by her former partner in Brisbane. Now, I don't want to go through the specifics of that story because we've all heard about it, but it's just horrific. Following Miss Clark's death, her parents, Sue and Lloyd, made it their mission to halt domestic violence and establish the foundation Small Steps for Hannah. The couple welcomed the government's announcement and said they had hoped other states and territories will follow suit. They said yesterday it was a very emotional day. This is why we formed Small Steps for Hannah. We are so grateful the government is actually going to make coercive control laws. It's something we've been pushing for, and we are so happy that they are putting money into education for kids. And also to the police force. They've always been behind us as well, but it's underfunded and there's a lack of recognition of coercive control. With this money, hopefully, that will make things a lot better and a lot stronger for the police. Uh, now, Hannah Clark's parents have also welcomed the addition of the Perpetrator Program, saying they hoped it would help perpetrators recognise their actions and change. A lot of perpetrators don't understand what they're doing or even that they are committing a crime, Miss Clark said. I like to think everyone can be helped or stopped if we can get in early enough. Now, the co-chair of Domestic and Family Violence Prevention Council and chair of the Alison Baden Clay Foundation described the announcement as a major step forward. Vanessa Fowler is her name. Her sister is Alison Baden... Or was. Oh, I hate saying that, but she was Alison Baden Clay. Now, we know Alison's story. She was murdered by her husband, Gerard, back in 2014. She said domestic and family violence is not just physical, it is a pattern of behaviour that occurs over many, many years. And in many instances, that final physical act of violence is the fatal one. I congratulate the government on taking the initiative, moving Queensland forward to a safer and more equal future for women, children, men and society. Now, the $363 million package of reforms will include new laws and programs to recognise and prevent coercive control, as well as a commission of inquiry into police responses to domestic and family violence and expansion of the specialist domestic and family violence courts. There will also be a special strategy for First Nations communities that's funding for perpetrator programs there to change behaviour and stop the cycle of violence. Now, the package will also include expansion of high-risk teams and co-responder models to ensure victims receive a joint response from police and DVF services and increase respectful relationships education to all Queensland children and young people. The government says the reforms are the result of Justice Margaret McMurdo's Women's Safety and Justice Task Force's first report, Hear Her Voice, which was handed down last December. The task force received more than 700 submissions from women and girls with lived experience of domestic and family violence. Uh, Premier Perrottet... Perrottet? No... Premier Palaszczuk said yesterday the government said it would implement all 89 recommendations made by the task force. In addition, women have literally taken to the streets to say enough is enough. Now, coercive control disproportionately affects women in Queensland. It includes isolating a partner from family and friends, monitoring their movements, controlling access to money and psychological and emotional manipulation. Now, Julie Sarkozy, who's a practice director in law reform and advocacy at Women's Legal Service Queensland, has praised the government for adopting all the report's recommendations. Ms Sarkozy said education and training would be the key to ensuring the successful implementation of the reforms. She said, I think they've done a fantastic job in terms of the report and the recommendations. So to hear that the Queensland government is endorsing and accepting every single one of those recommendations is great news. All right, well, of course, if you or someone you know is impacted by family or domestic violence, uh, there is help available 24-7, 1-800-RESPECTS. That is 1-800-737-732. 
or visit 1800respect.org.au and as always, in an emergency, dial triple zero. Now, the Men's Referral Service provides advice for men on all domestic violence and that can be contacted on this number, 1300 766 491. That's 1300 766 491. Marcus Paul in the morning. If you like, you can give me a call. What's the number, Marcus? 0406521250. Anytime, 24 7. Call me on, have your say on the Marcus Paul in the morning show. On Starter FM. All right, welcome back. Wednesday morning, well, the bear pit lived up to its name in New South Wales State Parliament yesterday with uh, some fiery debate on whether or not the state of New South Wales could afford in its budget to give the pay rises to frontline workers that the unions have been demanding. Also coming out of yesterday's... uh, parliamentary sittings was the fact that a newly elected MP has already received a $21,000 pay rise only two weeks after being sworn into Parliament. It's the Monero MP, the Nationals Nicole Overall. She got a 21k pay rise 14 days after being sworn in. So just two months after being elected as the Monero State National MP, Nicole was appointed as the chair of a major committee and given a 21 grand pay rise. Now, Nicole Overall is the wife of former mayor of, uh, of Queanbeyan, Tim Overall. Now, Tim's a good bloke. He put Queanbeyan on the map and redeveloped the city over a decade or so that he was uh, the Lord Mayor. And he's a good bloke. I don't mind Tim Overall. Spoke to him many times when I lived and worked in Canberra. Anyway, in question time yesterday... Shadow Health spokesman Ryan Park had Nicole Overall in his sights. He questioned the appointment of her to the Legislative Assembly Assembly Committee on Investment, Industry and Regional Development. Mr Park said, since your appointment as chair on April 12, your committee has not met or held a hearing and have cancelled pre-organised visits. Please advise the New South Wales taxpayer when your committee will actually do some work. Now, Mr Park said there was no information of when the next inquiry would be held following Miss Overall's appointment. But the newly elected MP, well, she hit back. She's no wilting violet, I can tell you that for sure. She told Parliament she was very well suited to have been appointed chair. And I agree with her. I think Nicole Overall is, uh, is a pretty good operator. The Nationals MP said she had an extensive background for the portfolio. The election was only held on February the 12th. I was sworn into Parliament on March the 22nd. I'm endeavouring to make sure that I'm getting across and abreast all of the work. Uh, The MP said she has run several businesses and was committed to industry, investment and regional development before offering up a copy of a resume to the opposition. She said she intends to continue to do all that she can to be across the information as required of her and to be able to call the committee and to be able to go forward with the meetings. So there we go. There's a little from New South Wales State Parliament yesterday. Marcus Paul in the morning. Alrighty, welcome back. Marcus, Paul in the morning. We were all shocked to see the vision of those avocados going to waste up there in Queensland. Um, Unfortunately for farmers, it's been cheaper just to turf them rather than farm and distribute them uh, into our supermarkets. Now, this popped up on uh, on my screen yesterday and I take it Uh, with a grain of salt. It sounds a little to me like an advertorial, but I'll pursue it because I think it's in everyone's interest if there's even a skerrick of truth to it. Um, Buying home brand products from Aldi, for instance, can apparently save you nearly $2,500 a year on groceries. As the cost of living continues to rise, many Australian families are looking for ways to save money wherever they can. While food is something that we all need to buy, Aldi, that's the independent German supermarket brand, they claim that shoppers can save a staggering $2,468 a year by making one simple switch. 
Well, the supermarket says you can slash your grocery bill by purchasing the home brand products available in their store rather than the more expensive branded equivalents from Coles and Woolworths. There's no catch. Just come and shop with us. We have a price promise to our customers and that's where we're between 15 and 25% cheaper than our nearest competitor. Now, look, uh, that's true. I, I wonder how it's news, though. It's pretty obvious. You can save money by buying unbranded pro- uh, products. New research commissioned by Aldi found a basket of goods at the supermarket is 15.6% cheaper than at competitors, saving the average family $1,555 a year. The price gap widens significantly to nearly 25% when comparing Aldi products to the equivalent branded product. With the average family spending 7% of their income on groceries, this means they could save a whopping nearly $2,500 each year if they usually buy branded products. Now, Aldi spokesperson Adrian Christie said that while Aldi doesn't offer all the frills available at Coles and Woolies, it guarantees the best value for money. Uh, He explained they have a smaller range of goods, They have a smaller shop. They have a smaller footprint. Uh, You know, we make you pack your bags and all of our products are stacked on the shelves in the boxes they come in. There are efficiencies that allow us to keep those low prices. You know, I never actually realised that. Of course they do. When you go into an Aldi store, it's like you're effectively shopping in a, uh, a kind of, I don't know, warehouse environment rather than a flashy supermarket. You compare Aldi's uh, shops to the bells and whistles and bright lights of Coles and Woolies with all of their branding and marketing and all the rest of it. Yeah, I, I can see how that works. Anyway, in March of this year, experts also revealed a simple way to slash your grocery bill by more than $1,000 a year. Research commissioned by ING Bank found people who did their weekly food shop online saved an average of nearly $1,370 over 12 months. ING, or let's just say ING, head of digital Amy Cunningham said the research suggested buying groceries remotely could be one of the easiest ways to save money. It's quick, convenient, and you avoid impulse buys. When you're shopping online and you can see that the shopping cart is adding up, you can easily judge your budget. You're more likely to be organised and have your meal planner or your shopping list so you can make sure you're actually sticking to the ingredients you need. You're also, of course, saving on petrol, car parking and time as well. Now, the research also found the COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated the preference for online convenience among grocery shoppers. Eight in ten respondents to a national survey of more than 1,000 adults said they started buying food online as they wanted to avoid traditional supermarket aisles. Well, there we go. So, look, it it kind of sounded a bit like an advertorial for Aldi and uh, the other mobs, but, you know, if it saves you a little bit of money, why not put it into practice? Marcus Paul in the morning. If you like, you can give me a call. What's the number, Marcus? 0406 521 250. Anytime, 24-7. Call me on, have your say on the Marcus Paul in the morning show. On Starter FM. Alrighty, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning. Now, this sounds like something out of the movies, but a diver's body has been found near $20 million worth of cocaine. And it was underneath a bulk carrier or a big ship in the port of Newcastle. Police are investigating whether the diver, who apparently drowned, was attempting to retrieve the 50 kilograms of drugs from a ship or the water. So mystery does surround the identity of this diver found dead near 50k of coke. Police have not yet identified the man despite running him through various databases after he was found unconscious and later died. They're investigating whether he was a drug mule whose job it was to retrieve the bricks of cocaine from a ship on the water. Or in the water, that is. 
He was found unconscious at around 9.30 in the morning on Monday by port officials before police later spotted a number of packages containing the white powder with an estimated street value of 20 million bucks. Police were investigating whether the drugs may have come from the hull of a nearby cargo ship called Areti, a Marshall Islands registered vessel which arrived in Newcastle from Argentina over the weekend. Two boats, a rubber dinghy and an aluminium runabout were also seen near the ship around midnight on Sunday, according to police. That's us. The dead diver had sophisticated dive equipment, according to police. That included a rebreather. That's an apparatus that lets divers breathe underwater without the telltale bubbles of less sophisticated scuba equipment. Now, if the dead diver is linked to the drugs, it's assumed he was not acting alone. Now, police say these people have fled, so it's quite disgusting that this man's been left to die regardless of what he was involved in. Uh, Police are appealing for any dive shops that may have sold the equipment or a sharkskin brand wetsuit to get in contact with them ASAP. Australian Border Force officers had been searching the Areti for the past 24 hours. Uh, The ABF, of course, screens all ships and their crew when they arrive in Newcastle. The crew had also been interviewed and the vessel likely would be allowed to leave the port in the next 24 hours. Now, police divers continued searching surrounding waters yesterday with the help from the Australian Border Force. Uh, There were simple reasons driving the import of drugs into Australia. Australian users are paying probably the highest rate for cocaine in the world, we're told. Uh, Police say their message for anyone thinking of importing coke into Australia is that the risks are too high. Having divers retrieve shipments from the hulls of ships is a technique used on and off by drug traffickers for a number of years. And police confirmed yesterday that the port of Newcastle had been under police scrutiny for some time, and it remains a point of risk. The Queensland University of Technology Associate Professor of Justice, Mark Locks, said drug gangs would use any technique they could think, you know, think of that worked. Drug traffickers might have a different idea about whether the risk is too high because enforcement only addresses the supply of drugs, not the demand. If people have the money, he said, they will just pay more, attracting more sellers. All right, as I say, it looked like uh, something out of a, uh, I don't know, a Hollywood movie. And it's not the first time, if this is the case, the drugs have been smuggled into Australia in the hulls of big cargo vessels. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning. 0406521250 is our hotline. If you want to call it 24-7, leave your message or send us a text. Well, some late breaking news yesterday saw the Northern Territory Chief Minister Michael Gunner resigning saying that his head and his heart was no longer in the job. The Labor leader says he grappled with the decision for weeks, but the birth of his second child sealed the deal. So Michael Gunner has resigned as Chief Minister moments after handing down the Northern Territory budget, saying his head and heart are no longer in the job. Now, Mr Gunner, the first Territory-born top-end leader, attributed the decision to the birth of his second son, Nash, on April 29, and simply wanting to spend more time with his family. Now, the 46-year-old also suffered from a heart attack in January in 2020. That, coupled with the COVID-19 pandemic, had taken a toll and he was tired. He said, it has caused me to reflect a lot over the past few weeks. I've always given 100% to this job and anything less is shortchanging the people that sent me here. I can no longer keep looking Territorians in the eye and say that I can keep giving 100% every day. And if I can't do that, I shouldn't be in this chair. Gunnar said he didn't need a second near-death experience to know life is unpredictable and can be cut short. He said when I held Nash for the first time, that's his newborn son, 
That was it. Game over. I knew straight away that I was done. I'm not going to stay in the job longer than I need just for the check or the ego. Now, Mr Gunner said he was still young for a politician, but old to be the father of a newborn and a toddler, Hudson, and would go back on paternity leave. Um, He said, that is who I want to spend more of my time with for as long as I can. And he was a little emotional when he made the announcement. I can understand that. The announcement came almost immediately after the Labor leader, originally from Alice Springs, delivered the Northern Territory's budget for 2022-23. After his budget speech to Parliament, Gunner told the House it was the right time for him to go, but he would remain in Parliament as the member for Fanny Bay. So he's going to rem- he's going to go on paternity leave. He'll still stay an MP, but he's standing down from the state's top job. Deputy Chief Minister Nicole Manison will serve as acting chief, with a new parliamentary Labor leader to be determined later this week. She thanked her colleague and said she was proud to also call him a friend. She said, "I think Michael will leave an outstanding legacy of being a transformative chief minister." It's been an honour. You're a legend, she said. Somebody who has set the foundations economically and socially so our kids grow up with more opportunities. Now, Madison is strongly favoured to take the position, but she batted away questions about the job, saying it would be determined by the Labor caucus. Uh, As for Mr Gunner, he was first elected to the Northern Territory Parliament back in 2008 and became opposition leader in 2015. He led Labor, of course, to that landslide victory in 2016 before his government was returned easily back in 2020, partly on the back of its handling of the pandemic. Mr Gunner said he loved the Territory because it was a place of potential and possibility. He said it doesn't matter who you are, you can have a crack and make something of yourself. I like to think my own story shows that a kid who grew up in public housing, who stacked shelves to get himself through uni, can serve the Territory as its Chief Minister. So there we go, Northern Territory Chief Michael Gunner resigns, saying his head and heart are no longer in the job. Alrighty, well, that's it for the program today. Thank you for your company. Uh, the Prawncast podcast will be up a little later online where you get your favourite podcasts from. Please, if you wouldn't mind, if you download it, please give it a share on your social media. Stay, um, of course, up to date with our Facebook page. We post news events as it happens with a particular focus, of course, on the federal election, which is now only, what, 10 days away. Amazing how quickly it's come around or maybe people are sick of it already. I'm not quite sure. Anyway, we'll be back tomorrow on starterfm.com.au, the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in and, of course, on the Prawncast. Enjoy the rest of your day. Please take care if you're in any of those areas affected by that wild weather, particularly for my listeners and followers in Queensland. All of us will catch you tomorrow, 7 till 9, Australian Eastern Standard Time. Marcus Paul in the morning. Diamond's body has been found in $20 million worth of cocaine. If you like, you can give me a call. What's the number, Marcus? 0406521250, anytime, 24-7. Call me on, have your say on the Marcus Paul in the Morning Show. On. Starter FM.